0: I'm Chad Reed.
1: I'm Hillary Langer.
0: I'm Gil Jenkins. And this is Climate Positive. One of our
1: goals is to start opening some of these purple and even red states where the message is largely around job creation and and tax revenue and offering farmers a diversified way to generate income, right, where they can carve off a piece of their total land holdings and generate predictable lease income for a number of years that takes away some of the
2: unknown. That's where this needs to go. For this week's show, we spoke with Steve Rader, the founder and CEO of Summit Ridge Energy, the nation's leading commercial solar company. In our conversation that follows, Steve details his transition from Sun Edison to founding Summit Ridge Energy in 2017, highlighting the importance of the commercial solar market in the broader clean energy transition. We explored Summit Ridge's growth strategy, and we also got his perspective on a variety of market dynamics at play. Additionally, Steve shared an update on their major solar panel supply partnership with QCELLS announced last year, which is the largest domestic community solar purchase ever. Towards the end, Steve shared insights into their innovative sustainability apprenticeship program in Chicago and a whole lot more. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Steve.
0: Steve, thanks for joining us on Climate Positive. Thanks, Gil. Thanks for having me. Maybe to start this off, let's do the the background on your journey and what led you to found Summit Ridge in 2017.
1: Yeah. So I was at Sun Edison and I was the general manager of our East Coast commercial business and and we had really started some great work on virtual net metering structures, which I think is the precursor to community solar. Things really ramping up. And, you know, the company went in the wrong direction on, on a number of levels. Unfortunately, I had to file for bankruptcy. I had been thinking about peeling off in anticipation that things might not go particularly well in Sun Edison there at the end. So started having some some meetings with some of the folks that were on my team at the time and and you know, some conversations with folks who were at other companies that I had always wanted to bring over to Sun Edison to be a part of my team. Brian Dunn, being one of them, who was over at Hunt Companies, sure. you know, who's my my partner in crime here over at, at Summer Ridge at this point, really, there was a sense that we had started something that had legs and that had tremendous growth potential. Uh, and I frankly thought that that we could do it better than Sun Edison was was doing it. I thought that there were some very simple execution tweaks in doing things in a different way that didn't require that much outside the box thinking or you know, creativity, ingenuity to do it right. I think our space is complicated. I think we've done things over here better than most. We've we've had a tremendous growth trajectory since starting the company in 2017, but initially I think the the vision was just to pick up where we left off and, and
0: and execute right. So it wasn't that's right. So it wasn't like this that classic like cocktail napkin moment where it was just about hey, I got the this experience here, this space is emerging, we have the right people and team, and let's go right.
1: Yeah, I was one of the ones at Sun Edison that really you know helped kind of move the business off the rooftop onto the ground. Right, was kind of at the front there in, in terms of going out and building these ground mount systems and on farmland and then turning around and selling the net metering credits, build the bill credits to customers, largely commercial customers at the time. But, you know, you could see where things were headed with community solar. That the, Again, it was really the, the precursor to community solar. There wasn't much residential customer ratepayer involvement, residential ratepayer involvement at the time, but it, it was apparent that that's the way things were moving. So it, I'm not going to say it was mindless at all. We had a plan. We, we saw what we could do when we were at SunEd and said, hey- If we broke out, you know, threw a couple of our own bucks in, raised a little bit, a little bit of money on the side, this thing would have legs, would have tremendous growth potential. I think we've exceeded, frankly, what we, where we thought we'd be.
0: Yeah. I want to come back to that. But before we get any farther for the uninitiated, I I assume our audience has a pretty good sense of the various segments within solar and other renewable asset classes. But I want to hear from you. Can you kind of break down the value prop for community solar? And, you know, it's place in the broader energy transition.
1: Sure. We've been doing this for close to seven years at this point. So, we, you know, we we officially launched in July of 17, but Tyler Holden and I, who's one of our partners here, hatched this thing up really in the fall of, of 16. So we've been at it a while. Community solar, you know, there, there was traditionally this designation between community and behind the meter and CNI. Community solar really is CNI solar at this point, right? It's 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 not just the fastest growth segment within the commercial vertical. It represents the largest number of megawatts by far. Community solar is, is a simple concept. It's it, it allows us to build solar farms either on farmland, green fields, you know, brown fields, or on rooftops, largely industrial rooftops, and then turn around and sell a derivative of the power, usually in the form of a bill credit. To customers. So the net result is just that we can provide guaranteed savings to to both residential and small commercial customers on a monthly basis.
0: So, can you break down? Because I think what's unique about this, I mean, I've been a community solar customer myself since 19, since we started working with you guys, subscribed to the Simba project. But the experience of the role of the aggregator for the customer who's subscribing, a residential customer who's subscribing, could you talk about the unique role of the aggregators, companies like Arcadia, Neighborhood Sun, in my case? I don't think people are sort of understand that model on where they come in and manage your utility bill and, and so forth.
1: Yeah, we don't have that kind of ratepayer facing group here with Summit Ridge, right? We purposely not. We have stayed away from trying to build that that capability internally. The aggregators are responsible for going out and signing up the customers, frankly. It's the... It's not that simple. There's there's a lot to that, but we do work with the likes of Arcadia and Ambian and IGS and a couple of others. Those are those are the three primary groups that we work with to go subscribe both residential and small commercial customers for us. Those same entities are now helping us subscribe LMI customers, which is a fantastic kind of benefit of community solar. You know, we can we can sell not only to to folks that live in wealthy neighborhoods, which I think traditionally was was kind of the case or historically. But we can turn around and sell to folks located in an apartment complex, folks in subsidized housing developments, which is fantastic, right? And provide that same level of guaranteed savings, in many cases, provide greater savings.
0: Yeah, I think that's what's so compelling to me about the you know the democratization of solar with community solar in terms of who you can bring it to. Uh, you alluded, you know, community solar is CNI solar at this point. I think community solar by the analysts still, it's still one of the fastest growing segments when broken out that way. I was looking at Woodmax forecast saying that U.S. community solar market will more than double in the next five years. Tell me about how Summit Ridge is positioning itself to, uh, you know, capitalize on this continued growth momentum.
1: We are very focused on executing over here, right? And, and kind yes. of continuing to do what we do, op- optimizing our portfolio, taking advantage of some of the of the IRA tax incentive adders, the ITC adders that that we can leverage to build in places where we historically have not been able to build because the the economics haven't justified the effort. That's front and center in terms of our strategy, optimizing the IRA. Again, the ability to take a project to a 50, 60% ITC really opens up doors for us not just in terms of being able to to build in areas where we historically haven't but I, but to offer you know more meaningful savings to, to certain segments of customers so we're heavily involved in the regulatory front in a number of markets I think we've been instrumental in driving forward policy in in several community markets we we've you know that's not to say that we've uh, that we've been front and center by any means in every community solar market but the sandbox frankly still isn't that big. One of the things that, that we are trying to do is, is, to, is to grow the sandbox by getting a couple of these new markets opened up. Pennsylvania is a great example. You know, Michigan, Wisconsin, that have been kind of, I'm not going to say on the, on the cusp of opening for years, but there's been a lot of discussion for years. And I think there's a clear path in a couple of those markets that I just mentioned, a couple of those states.
0: Well, let's stay on that. So Summit Ridge is, is active in 22 states. Is that right?
1: Gil, yeah, I'd have to check. It's probably more like 15. We're primarily active in a handful of states, right? We have the market leading position in in Maine and in Maryland and Illinois and in Virginia at this point. I think we we represent over half the the capacity either awarded or built in a couple of those markets. You know, we've got land positions and we're actively developing in in, in several additional markets. We're actually constructing projects in other in other markets as well. You know, we're we're active in Delaware right now, for instance. We're active in Minnesota. New Mexico is a market where we're active. But unfortunately, there aren't really twenty-two markets where we can we can build or acquire projects at scale. Not yet. That's
0: the well, goal. Well, maybe let's talk you alluded again to the policies and your involvement in the regulatory. Can you kind of unpack the policies that are, are driving this market at the state level? It's it's things like the solar carve-outs and renewable portfolio standards. How are you thinking about that as as part of the growth strategy? And where is the model really working?
1: It's RPS standards in certain markets, but the markets that are wide open and active are the blue states that you would expect to be more receptive to to community solar type policies, right? I think one of our goals is to start opening some of these purple and even red states where the message is largely around job creation and, and tax revenue generation, right? and And- offering farmers a diversified way to, to generate income, right. Where I think Leslie Elder says this well, where they can, you know, develop their back 40, they can carve off a piece of their, of their total land holdings and generate predictable lease income for a number of years, right. With the fixed escalator. So it's, that takes away some of the unknown. That's where this needs to go, Gil, to, to really take the next step. can't, we can't just keep focusing on the same Northeast or, you know, largely Democratic-controlled state legislatures. And I think there's a real opportunity to to take the message and open up some of these markets to, to some of these more purple and even deep red Republican states.
0: I love that. Maybe on that theme, you had some huge news in April of 23 with your partnership with Qcells, where they'll provide 1.2 gigawatts of solar panels to help supply you all as you grow the project portfolio and many new states we talked about over the next four years you had a, a big announcement ceremony down in dalton georgia uh where the vp spoke give us a little behind the curtain on on how that deal came about and how it's still going i, I think they're the factory's up and, and running perhaps but you know that was a huge moment i'm sure just as an observer but i'd be curious having not talked to you about it what that experience was like
1: we've been working with q cells with Hanwha for years at this point first and foremost a fantastic company great partnership executive team that we trust you know we've been working with with the same set of folks for a number of years now so domestic content aside which I'll get into in a second i think we'd still be working with qcells right you know there are cheaper modules that we could go source from different manufacturers sure i don't think we would choose that route you know even if even if we you know wanted to at this point putting domestic content aside qcells has been at the forefront though in terms of of planning to capitalize on domestic content adders that you know are now available through the IRA package that that passed, I think, tech, you know, in the summer of 22, all the modules that we will be purchasing from them starting in Q4 of this year will will be manufactured in a facility in Cartersville, Georgia. So awesome announcement! And Dalton, you know, went down and spoke with the vice president, which was which was really a, a neat experience. Those modules are assembled in the U.S., but they don't qualify for the the 10% domestic content adder. So the modules that we will be receiving starting in Q4 of this year will be coming from another Georgia facility that that they're building currently in Cartersville, Georgia. And that gives us the opportunity to, as a base case, really, all of our, taking a step back, all of our projects at a certain point this year will be at a 40% ITC base case because you know we'll be using domestically manufactured product coming out of the Cartersville facility. Fantastic. Which, again, enables us enables us to build in areas that we wouldn't otherwise be able to build, you know, and frankly offer a level of savings that, that we wouldn't be able to provide.
0: That's excellent. I, I can't talk about the, you know, the positives while also reflecting on the past couple of years when we're talking about manufacturing and, you know, supply chain has been interesting in the, in the solar business. It's easing, right? I mean, are, I know you all experience some, some challenges there, just like everyone in the sector, but how, how is it easing? Um, in part because oh, the... I
1: thought you said it was easy. It was, of course, no, it's no, easy. Super not easy. easy. <laughs> ne-
0: never any hiccups. Yes, it's all perfect all the time. But you know, you've learned a lot, I'm sure, during those challenges and COVID and subsequent. Yeah, you know, we we haven't
1: we haven't experienced the supply chain challenges I think that others have in part because we've been working with Hanwha, you know, almost right. on an exclusive basis for so many years now. Yes, you know, steel made. It, it, Commodity pricing was and, and, and is higher than it was. I'd say pre-COVID. That might not be exactly accurate in terms of steel pricing, although I think in general that statement is true. The cost to build these things has has gone up, right? I mean, with the need now to use prevailing wage labor, which you know we support, obviously, sure. it does cost more to build these systems than it than it used to. But the supply chain and the pricing of the components that we use to build these solar farms has has eased, right? Module pricing has come down, you know, over the past 18 months here. And I think I that think the, the general trend is moving in the right direction. Our bill costs are still higher than they were a few years ago, but starting to get back to a stable place.
2: Climate Positive is produced by Hasse, a leading climate investment firm that actively partners with clients to deploy real assets that facilitate the energy transition. To learn more, visit Hasse.com. We talked a little bit about IRA and, and again, thinking
0: about what that will do for growth. The administration, I think, has a solar specific goal that 30% of U.S. electricity generation by 2030, and certainly we're going to need policy stability and an increasing solar workforce uh, that is expected to grow to more than a million workers. One of the cool things I know you guys have done on the workforce level is this solar apprenticeship program in Illinois that trains veterans and others for solar careers. I wonder if you could talk about that and your and, and through that experience, how you're thinking about how we build this workforce to meet the moment and all the growth we're expecting in the years ahead.
1: Yeah, the sustainability hub in Chicago is something I think we're I'm personally extremely proud of. You know, I'm, I'm involved. Working with Five Four Enterprises now at the board level, and 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 think what AJ and and Rob are doing is just fantastic, and is a model that should be replicated in other cities. And frankly, you know something that Rob Wallace for uh, with a group called Power Fifty Two that he founded, you know, has been doing for many years at this point. It's a simple uh, mission. It's it's to train folks, largely disadvantaged folks, many of whom need a second chance to train them up on on how to install and I think eventually maintain solar farms, right? So, so providing lifelong job skills in an industry, you know, I've said it a, a, many times, but but built to last in an industry that's, that has a extremely strong growth trajectory. And the, to so the graduation rate has been tremendous. And and more importantly, I think all the folks that have graduated, most of the folks that have graduated so far, if not all, have received job offers, right? And so we provided some, some seed funding to the sustainability hub last year. In fact, I think it might've even been at the end of 22 We've since provided additional funding and feel really good about the work that's going on over there. Again, it's a model that can and should be replicated across cities across North America. And it's, it, that will have a, a fantastic impact in terms of, of bolstering the workforce that's needed to realize the, the growth that's, that's projected over the next few decades here.
0: Before we get to the uh, hot seat, let's do one crystal ball prediction. When you're up late at night and you're you're thinking about all the possibilities, how we're going to do this? How do you see this market evolving in five years? Like, what trends are you most excited about, or that we should be watching that you haven't already hit on?
1: I think d- development and construction activities in markets that don't have programs, right? So, so building solar farms in states where no community solar program exists is not only entirely possible now, but but that opportunity will only increase as time goes on as, as our construction costs continue to, to get a little lower and we become more efficient, right? In terms of the equipment that we're using, the modules that we're using, right? Higher efficiency, leveraging the, the tax credit adders, the ITC adders that we can, either through domestic content or through serving LMI customers or through citing projects and and energy communities or CGEST zones, as we call them, those things will allow us to build in areas where we haven't before, right? In areas where the irradiation is better and in areas where interconnection might be easier and where it might be slightly where it should be cheaper to build. But outside of an established state-funded program, right, I think the untethering from state level incentive programs is a is a trend that that will increase over the next five years it's not going to happen overnight opening these programs and receiving that state level support is is still tremendously important especially when you're in parts of the country where the sun doesn't shine as bright where your irradiation is is lower That's right. uh, you need a little more help right but there are all there are, you know, numerous markets in 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 the United States right now where we should be developing solar, where we're not, right? I mean, the fact that Summer Ridge owns a huge portfolio in Maine, I'm proud of. But man, it'd be easier to to own that portfolio <laughs> in, in one of the Gulf states, right?
0: I bet in the milestone, states, sure. In the smile states. Well, we're getting there. I mean, I think it's exciting too when you think about the cultural resonance and political power of uh, an industry that's growing and get, you know, in those purple states and red states. And that's really where we need to be. You got so many great projects. And I'm not just saying that because we're a co-investor with Summit Ranch uh, and I'm a customer. Do you have a favorite that comes to mind when I ask you about some of your installations of late?
1: The bomber has to, is, is one that always comes to mind. It's, it's, I believe it's the, either the largest or the sole Marvel comic book printing
0: facility in the US? <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow, that makes it even cooler. It's it's the largest rooftop community solar community
1: industry. solar project. Believe it or not, we have two or three that we're working on right now that are much bigger. Yeah, but the bobber is just it's awesome getting on top of that roof and 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 really it's hard to see from one side to the other doing it in our backyard here in Maryland is 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 awesome we we've built far more rooftop projects than i had anticipated when starting this thing and you know for what it's worth too coming out of the environment that i did and and really beating the pants off the old company that i came from and really becoming the largest commercial solar company provider in in the country has been a tremendous source of pride i'm proud of my team i'm proud of what we've done and we've done it with relatively small group of folks we still only have 125 employees And the volume we've been able to churn out over the past, you know, six years, has just been, it's just been awesome. The bomber's symbolic of that. More to come on the rooftop front. We've got some really cool things that we're doing.
0: Okay. Let's turn to the hot seat where I ask you a series of mostly fill in the blank questions. The most important piece of advice I have followed is?
1: Well done is better than well said. I believe a man named Benjamin Franklin said that at some point.
0: All right, how about bad advice? What's the most important piece of advice or feedback you have rejected? Solar is a flow business. Tell me why that stuck with you.
1: It hopefully will be someday. It is not right now. Um, yeah. Very few businesses are. It's not a widget manufacturing business. There's a lot of of thought and hard work and you know engineering expertise and financial expertise and and all kinds of other things that go into successfully developing solar projects, solar farms, and building them.
0: The word or phrase I most overuse is... You know, maybe force multiplier? <laughs> That's a military thing. I yeah. said that with
1: our with our executive team a few times, I remember, in, in one session, and they're like, you keep saying that, so maybe
0: that. How about your productivity? What's the key ingredient to your productivity? First, you're assuming that I am productive, but if I am productive, my management
1: style is one of movement. It's one of talking to. Uh, I, I run a fairly flat organization. I talk to my staff fairly openly. Certainly, I have an executive team that I communicate with the most. But I am uh, constantly kind of moving around the office, popping into folks you know, to see them, whether you know they're sitting in a cube or in an office themselves. And I've always been one to communicate, you know, to at the most junior ranks all the way, you know, up to to the executive ranks because I think you. You have a much better understanding of what's happening in your organizations and challenges that you are facing and potential solutions if you do so.
0: Good. The most challenging part of my job
1: is? The most challenging part of my job is we are probably the most transactional shop in solar, certainly commercial solar, hundreds of closings a year, and me distilling or receiving a information set that is appropriately distilled down so that is at times challenging. I have a tendency to try to sometimes jump in the weeds and getting that information in in a very concise, high-level format is something that I think I've gotten better at over the years, but as we've grown, managing our growth has been fun, but challenging at times.
0: Good problem to have. Best part of my job is I got an awesome team
1: just coming in here and spending time and rolling up my sleeves and and winning with with folks. And at times, you know, and losing with folks, but just but doing what we do, which I firmly believe in for a number of levels. You know, I'm all in on the business side of what we do. I'm also an unabashed environmentalist. I, I believe in what we do. I believe in my team. I've been blessed with the talent that we've been able to attract and the team that we built over here. Just fun coming in the office and, and winning with such a great group of, of largely young folks.
0: The book that has influenced me the most is John Cotter's book
1: that I loved um, when I read it many years ago. It is called A Sense of Urgency. Why? It is anything but kind of fluffy strategic business advice and, <laughs> and, it, and it kind of outlines. What we all at our core know to be true and what I've witnessed in business over the years is is that you got to want it and you need to instill a a healthy sense of urgency in your folks to accomplish tasks and to execute. Healthy sense of urgency doesn't mean that it's a sense of stress. It just means a genuine desire to succeed and to execute and to complete tasks and to reap the rewards that hopefully follow.
0: One final fast signature question. Finish the sentence to me, climate positive means
1: I think we are moving in a bad direction. and there's a point when it becomes extremely difficult to reverse the trend. I think just taking action in the near term such that we such that we slow uh, the negative trajectory that we're on, and then over time, you know, hopefully more and more renewables come online. Globally, and you know, emissions are reduced, and and we start to see a, a positive trend in terms of of climate change. Because I do believe it's a an existential threat to our civilization over time. I feel like these storms that we're seeing will only get worse, and that we're going to be leaving a planet to our children and grandchildren that is far worse off if we don't if we don't take
0: action. Steve, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Thanks, Gil. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. It really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at ClimatePosipod or email us at climatepositive at hassie.com. I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.